This is episode 53 of Ethics and Culture Cast from the DeNicola Center for Ethics and Culture. Welcome to episode 53 of Ethics and Culture Cast from Notre Dame's DeNicola Center for Ethics and Culture. I'm Ken Hellenius, the communications specialist at the center. In this episode, we chat with David Devil and Jessica Hooten-Wilson, editors of the book Solzhenitsyn and American Culture, The Russian Soul in the West, a recent volume in our Solzhenitsyn book series with the University of Notre Dame Press. We chat about how they each came to encounter the great Russian writer, the importance of his orthodox faith on his writing, and how the time may be just right for us to be open to an authentic Russian influence on our culture. Let's log into the chat room for this fascinating conversation. Well, David and Jessica, thank you so much for uh, coming to be with us here on the podcast. And I'm really excited about this book, uh, which has been out for a while now, Solzhenitsyn and American Culture, The Russian Soul in the West. But I'm really interested in how each of you first came to encounter Solzhenitsyn. What is your interest, professional and maybe even personal, in Alexander Solzhenitsyn? Well, uh, I actually first read One Day in the Life of Ivan Denisovich in high school. We had to read a certain number of books, and uh, I found this one, and I'd heard the name. And so I was quite taken with it uh, because of this depiction of, of the Soviet camps and these fascinating characters. But I didn't really do a whole lot with it, even though when I went on to college at then Calvin College in Michigan, I came into contact with uh, Ed Erickson who is one of the leading Solzhenitsyn scholars uh, in the country. Uh, He's the one that we dedicated our book to. Jessica can maybe tell you the story about how that came about. Uh, But uh, I studied with Ed uh, Dostoevsky and uh, not the Solzhenitsyn class because he didn't offer it at the right time. Uh, But then it was only later when I began teaching here at the University of St. Thomas um, in a class called The Search for Happiness in the Catholic Tradition that I picked him back up again and started using stories and one day in the life of Ivan Denisovich to actually uh, talk about the question of happiness under dire circumstances. And it was through that class that, that I started thinking about what I'd always meant to do, which was to go back and start reading, reading much more of social needs. And that's what I've been doing. For me, I was very interested in Russian literature. I wanted to get a graduate degree in Russian literature And so Ken Myers of the Mars Hill, I had met him when he was giving a talk in Dallas. And he said, if you want to study Russian lit, you need to meet Ed Erickson. So at the next Calvin Festival for Faith and Writing, ran into Ed. We really connected and became intergenerational friends, as he said. And I jokingly said to him, you know, if you go back to Russia, you should take me with you. (laughs) So when he was invited by the Solzhenitsyn family to give a presentation at the Solzhenitsyn Center there in Moscow, he did. He followed through and he emailed me and said, I'm going to Russia. Do you want to go? So my knowledge of Solzhenitsyn's actual work was very limited. I had led a graduate student group through the Solzhenitsyn Reader 
So it was students from religion, politics, history, literature. And we were just all going through the Solzhenitsyn reader and getting acquainted with Solzhenitsyn. So before I met the Solzhenitsyn family, I then read One Day in the Life of Ivan Denisovich. I also read um, November 1917. And that was like my first introduction to his novels and getting invested in him. But going over and seeing his apartment seeing where he was taken by the KGB, uh, getting to talk to the family was so moving. And somebody who was just a writer became a person in those encounters. And when Ed passed a few years later, David and I were talking on the phone how best to continue Ed's legacy. And really it was about making more people acquainted with not only the writer, but the person Solzhenitsyn and in his fullness and not really uh, the way he's often portrayed, which is limited to his just political personality. He was involved. So uh, Professor Ed, uh, that you mentioned, I mean, he was involved in creating that Solzhenitsyn reader, as well as I know he collaborated directly with Solzhenitsyn in abridging the Gulag Archipelago, correct? Mm-hmm. Yes, yes. And the reader was with Dan Mahoney, who also was a big contributor to our Solzhenitsyn book who was able to kind of tell us some of the person you know, the persons, the experts that we needed to get involved. Cause so, D- David and I are not ex- Solzhenitsyn experts. I think we have had to somewhat become more Solzhenitsyn experts than we intended because of this book, but it was really people like uh, Dan Mahoney and um, David Walsh and people like that, that we wanted to get involved who, who know their stuff and had to be included in this book. Yeah. Um, well, one of the sections in this book explores Solzhenitsyn, and you kind of hinted at this, Jessica, uh, as a Christian writer whose works both presuppose and engage his faith over against this common reading and understanding that his work is primarily um, political, right? Uh, one essay by uh, Baylor professor Ralph Wood examines his distinctively orthodox Christianity that undergirds his writing. But I came away from that essay wondering if that orthodox worldview isn't in some ways just as different from our dominant Western Christian theological understanding, you know, like Protestant Catholic understanding, maybe just as different as Marxist Leninist communism is from liberal democracy, right? Is that a fair read, I guess? Uh, and if so, does there is there this unbridgeable kind of gap between our cultures? Maybe even to put it another way, the subtitle of the book is The Russian Soul in the West. And it seems to me just reading, you know, what Ralph Wood writes and, and reading several of the essays, there is a different understanding to the world. Yeah, I'll talk religion and let David talk the politics part. Is that fair, David? So you can talk sure. about the difference between the American and the Marxist. Yeah. <laughs> um, but let me let me do the religion because that's really my area. I know uh, the Orthodox imagination, mostly through writers like Dostoevsky, but also looking at Vodolajkin, who is a recent novelist who contributed to our volume. And his essays, I think you get an understanding of why it is we're more connected than maybe people realize. The thing is about the Western church, just looking at the church in, in the West, we have this haunting from the medieval way of seeing reality that is still lingering. It's still there in our imagination. 
even though we've tried to dissect it and run away from it for so many centuries. And that's what has been preserved in the Russian Orthodox imagination is a way of looking at reality with a deeper understanding of its significance, kind of um, the sacramental cosmology, the way Chesterton would talk about it, right? And this is not something that's pervasive in the Protestant imagination, but it, it's, it's still in the Catholic imagination. <laughs> it's very much in the Russian imagination, where everything that you're doing is participating both in this time and in the unseen eternity. It's taking place in the visible world as well as the invisible world. And that's what the Russian Orthodox imagination is always trying to put you in touch with. And that's the reason they deal with death so much in Russian novels, because they want to push you to that brink where you have to register that are you going to end when your body does or not? (laughs) They want you to really question that because if you are eternal, if there's something about you that's going to last and that matters, then how do you re-see where you are now in the things of this world. And that's what the Russian imagination's trying to do. So what David and I were doing with this like idea of the Russian soul in the West is we're trying to pull from our past, our shared collective Western past, to say, you know, the split that took place between the East and the West, there was still there was something lost that needs to be regained that actually is still very fitting and cohesive with the church now. And that will revitalize the church now if we if we go back and pull some of those goods forward. Uh, and that's why we included some of these essays on religion that we did. And when you talk about the split between the East and the West, you're talking 1054. Yeah, not- I'm talking about 11th century, <laughs> yeah, right? Like, yeah. But that's something that hasn't changed in Russia. And we still have lingering remnants of it, but we've lost it in the collective unseen, you know, collective seen church as it is now. Mm-hmm. You know, Joseph Pierce, who's one of our contributors, uh, who's a Catholic, um, his, you know, his essay is very interesting in our volume. Um, in part, it's based upon his interviews that he did with Solzhenitsyn himself when he wrote his own book on Solzhenitsyn a couple of decades ago. But what's interesting about Joseph's essay is precisely drawing those lines of continuity to the modern, the modern thinkers that many Western Christians will have heard of. You know, Jessica Huston mentioned Chesterton, of course, Tolkien, who is also a uh, you know, an object of Professor Wood's uh, interest, um, T.S. Eliot, all of those things. And what's fascinating about Joseph's piece is, you know, tying together some of the, this, these comments of Solzhenitsyn, uh, in which, you know, he really affirmed that, yes, we're, we're about the same things. When, you know, when Pierce would bring up a number of these authors, Solzhenitsyn would say, I suppose they're about as listened to as, as I am in Russia. <laughs> um, so, so there's commonality, but there's also a commonality uh, that Solzhenitsyn draws us to, that the tragedy that befell Russia is not something that's separate from the West. You know, he's always making this point that there's nothing specifically sort of totalitarian susceptible about being Russian. Um, We, you know, we fell for the same reasons that the the broader West is having problems today. And that is, you know, as he later will put it in the Templeton Address, that men have forgotten God. Mm -hmm. Which reminds me, you know, the even the idea of um, the communist regime, you know, tried to suppress Christianity, but they only had it for they only had the attempt for what, you know, 60, 65, 70 years, whereas we in the West continue to work on that, right? Well, I think that's something to really point out the connections between the two. Like when you look at America and what's happening here and what happened over there, you know, the first thing that 
Nazis did was burn books. The first thing that communists did was close churches. And what have we done here is a lot more subtle. We've convinced people not to care about reading. We've mm-hmm. convinced people that churches are empty and they're not worth going to. So we've done it more through our rhetoric and our you know poor examples of imagination and our our poor films and our poor books. You know the, these substitutes that kind of convince people to not be as full of a human being as they could be. <laughs> yeah. Whereas they did it more in the external. They they just tore down the churches to rubble before them. And that actually increased the spiritual urgency for a lot of the Russian people in a way that maybe our culture has learned from and is trying to do it in a more um, subtle and demonic, I want to say demonic <laughs> way. May not be that far off. Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, you know, Solzhenitsyn, you know, saw our, our great wealth and our material prosperity and our technological prosperity. And one of the echoing themes in so much of his work is that that stuff doesn't really mean a whole lot unless there's actually spiritual depth. And that's why, you know, he speaks so, so highly of, of spiritual growth and of suffering. I mean, very Russian, but also a very Christian thing mm-hmm. uh, in order to, to remind people that, that you have to actually, uh, you know, die and be, you know, be buried like the seed in order to experience that resurrection. Um, and that's what makes that's what makes so many of his, his great works, particularly about the gulag, so powerful is that he finds that, you know, that nothing succeeds like failure in a way um, that when you when he finally got into this prison, it sort of woke him up. And then it's a, a continuing process of waking up. And that's easier to do when you're stripped of all that you have. Mm-hmm. Um, we need to be able to figure out ways of stripping ourselves. Uh, mm-hmm. But, you know, since we don't prune ourselves very well. God always finds a way to prune us. <laughs> Says the fellow who's, we're sitting socially distanced uh, for the last year, right? Right, exactly. <laughs> you make reference there to Joseph Pierce and his essay, in which is from that section, which is all about Solzhenitsyn and the writers. The last section of the book is all about writers and poets who either reflect some of the same themes that Solzhenitsyn explores or were themselves in, influenced by the Russian writer. Um, now, you are both scholars of literature. You work in, in this. Uh, can I ask you, uh, who are some other writers that you yourselves read who perhaps echo or build upon Solzhenitsyn's legacy? Because I, I couldn't help but notice, Jessica, you let somebody else write the essay on Flannery O'Connor in this book. And yet that's how I came to know you in the, it, at the beginning. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I did. Juliana Leachman, who I was able, I got to know her because she had graduated, I think, University of Texas and did a, a whole dissertation on the Russians and the Southerns. And I was like, oh, <laughs> you're doing this too. Let's see. Uh, so I wanted her to contribute and she was just getting involved in, in the academy. So, uh, but O'Connor, of course, and I would say more than O'Connor, even Walker Percy read Solzhenitsyn. And most of Percy's work is uh, envy of Solzhenitsyn. He said, you know, I wish that we were taken as seriously as writers in America as the Russians take Solzhenitsyn, that they understand the danger of the imagination when it's properly cultivated, the danger of these good ideas and what they can do. And yet, of course, um, our culture doesn't doesn't do the same thing. We haven't exiled writers. We don't 
think that they're worth listening to or that there is something to be feared in the same way that the um, the Russians did. But I, I think we might be better off if we realize how dangerous writers can be, good writers. Maybe cancel culture is a good, is that what you're saying? <laughs> no, but maybe, maybe the, the impulse to silence, right, is recognizing that there's something dangerous, that yeah. there is uh, a way people can be changed by truth, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Certainly wakes us up. I mean, that's, and, and you know, that's what he's trying to do yeah. is, you know, waking up people in not only in the West and in Russia as yeah. well uh, to, to help us be maybe not woke, but awakened uh, <laughs> to, to the need to see God and to, to turn towards conscience. Uh, you know, I mean, I, I can't think of a whole lot of writers following in a sway. I mean, I think many of the people who read him are, are, you know, political philosophers and people like that. And that's, that's why we wanted to draw attention to him, particularly in Jessica's essay, among others, mm-hmm. as truly a literary artist. Uh, but I do like, you know, Pierce's idea of putting him into contact with so many other writers. I mean, my, one of, some of my main specialties are people like Chesterton and Newman. And, and I found that when I teach Newman, uh, you know, John Henry Newman, Catholic saint, when I teach on conscience, I'm often bringing up Solzhenitsyn uh, because what Newman formulates in, in a number of very lucid, lucid essays and sermons about conscience, Solzhenitsyn is bearing witness to it, particularly in his literary work, showing what a soul who listens to conscience is like. Yeah, interesting. Yeah, I think one of the things to remember about Solzhenitsyn, I mean, Americans, and I, I said this in our introduction, but Americans are really hesitant to take on big books like that. <laughs> I mean, that's just the, that's the honest truth. You see a giant book and you're like, oh, I could read three or I could read one by Solzhenitsyn. And the problem is that Solzhenitsyn is probably worth more in that one book than any three books you can read. And the reason I say that is you have to remember what the man went through to write those books. Mm-hmm. He really did lay his life on the line to write them. So here's the story that a man was willing to die for. He was not writing a novel to become famous. He was not writing a novel to entertain you. He was not writing a novel to pat your ego on the back. He was writing a novel to say, there is something um, worth living for and there's something worth dying for. And this is what it is. And so his books are all this kind of great message that we're missing most of the time and that we're not paying attention to. And the reason his books demand so much is because he wanted your investment for that amount of time. He wanted this opportunity to really speak to you and change you and get you to invest in his novels. And so he, he does, he demands a lot <laughs> from his readers. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I might add, we, you know, we talked about Ed Erickson, our, our mentor and friend, um, he not only did the Solzhenitsyn Reader, which puts a lot of those things together with Dan Mahoney, but he also worked with Solzhenitsyn on a one-volume version of the Gulag Archipelago. And he suggested this to Solzhenitsyn precisely on the basis of what Jessica was saying is, you know, we, we Americans are not quite used to this. So if we could take the 1,800 to 2,000 pages, you know, boil it down to, you know, four or 500, uh, that might sell a few more books. And Solzhenitsyn thought this was you know, despite his aversion to sort of dumbing down for people, he thought this was a good idea. And he recognized that some of the very specific historical stuff could be sacrificed to, to get that to people and maybe, you know, maybe expand their depth so they could read read longer books later. 
Yeah. There was a, a quotation in the essay Solzhenitsyn's Cathedrals that I highlighted. Among Solzhenitsyn's many works, two great cathedrals, as George Niva has called them, stand out. One incredibly long and the other still longer. Um, <laughs> that, that really jumped out at me. Which makes me wonder, many are intimidated by the sheer scope of, of his, of his work. Is there perhaps an essay or two here in your book that might inform and serve as a launching point for diving into the author himself, for diving into reading Solzhenitsyn himself? Oh, definitely. I mean, I don't want to just highlight mine and David's essays, but I am going to start with that because honestly, I mean, we wrote them for that exact reason. Whereas I think some of the other essays are probably stronger in substance because they're by experts, but they're written in, in such a way like, go deeper now with these other people. So um, David and I are doing more of the launch pad essay. Sure. And so David is on One Day in the Life of Ivan Denisovich, which is the best book to start with when you're starting Solzhenitsyn. And then mine is on In the First Circle, which is by far his most literary novel. It, it's not an experiment the way the Gulag Archipelago is, where it takes a lot of different genres and put the, puts them into one piece. Uh, in the first circle is just a straightforward novel. And so it's it's more in our um, British and American tradition of novel writing where we can understand it and get a grasp of it. So I think our two essays are probably great places to start. And the last one you've already mentioned is Ralph Woods on Matriana's Home because it's a short story. Mm-hmm. So, so maybe those three, I would say, are your yeah. best launch pad essays. Well, I mean, you mentioned Gary Saul Morrison's piece on the Twin Cathedrals. I think for people who are sort of intimidated by the length of that. I do think that Gary gives an incredible taste of both of them that sort of is, is appetizing for somebody to sort of see what's going on in them. Sure. Uh, I, you know, I find, I find it a useful one, you know, to boil down your thoughts on big books. Sometimes you need other people who are very good at condensing them. Right. And it may help for the red wheel that it's not all in English yet. So you can actually catch up before the next volume comes out. Right. That's right. <laughs> yeah. I have to admit, I've only read November 1916, but there's, uh, you know, March 1917. What else is there? <laughs> there's like four nodes, right? Yeah. yeah. And and each of those has multiple volumes within them, right? Yeah. I think it's 10 total volumes when all is said and done, I think is the grand yeah, plan. right, yeah. yeah. Yeah, most of it's been published in Russian. I mean, maybe all of it has been, but, but and that's that's been one of the wonderful things is working with Notre Dame Press, which was putting out these volumes at the same time. I mean, uh, virtually a, a couple of weeks after our volume, um, the second volume of Solzhenitsyn's memoirs between two millstones uh, came out about his time in the West, and I, you know, it's it's delightful. I'm I'm working on a review of it right now, and uh, it's 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 very illuminating for people, especially once you know a little bit about him. Uh, and it humanizes him in, in a wonderful way. Uh, I was telling some students the other day that, you know, Solzhenitsyn is, you know, considered this sort of gruff, prophetic, you know, sort of no-nonsense character. But in there, he talks at one point about holding one of his infant sons and taking him outside, uh, you know, and bonding with him. And you get a real sense of, of you know, he might be the bear, but he's a cuddly bear, uh, <laughs> dis- despite everything. And that, that that's that's powerful for people. Mm. Well, uh, you know, this is the first volume in the Center for Ethics and Culture Solzhenitsyn series, which is not by Solzhenitsyn himself. And so, I mean, I'm delighted to be able to to chat with you about this. This isn't a podcast that dives deep into the news of the day, but I wonder 
if you've gotten any feedback from readers or critics who question the timing of this book, I could imagine the suggestion that our current political climate coming off of years of accusations of interference in U.S. elections by the Russian government, or it may not be the best time to publish a book arguing for Americans to heed the particular insights of a Russian thinker, even if he was a dissident. I, and you've referenced this. Even while he was alive, so, uh, you know, Solzhenitsyn didn't really endear himself to either progressives nor conservatives, you know, with uh, having a critical eye towards both. Who then really is the audience for this book? I think it's both. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I mean, th- this is the thing. I think many, t- you know, much of the progressive left has sort of left that view of the world that is theistic and considers God. But, but uh, you know, I think that there are echoes, you know, of their thought about the call for justice and truth that can be heard there. But I think conservatives who often have written off Russia in different ways over the years uh, also need to hear this. I mean, Solzhenitsyn got a kind of a bad rap, even, you know, even when he was in America, not only by people on the so-called left, but also people on the so-called right who considered him a reactionary monarchist, you know, Russian Orthodox theocrat and all sorts of things, when really what he was calling for was something that was balanced, humane. Uh, And I think I think that's that's a message that needs to be heard. Uh, You know, the real Solzhenitsyn needs to needs to come out for everybody. I thought you were going to say the real Solzhenitsyn. Please stand up. <laughs> I like felt that like rap rhythm about to bust out of David. Um, you know, I, I think that the book is important to really unite sides. And this is the problem with our current culture. I mean, if our book was going to come out at a better time than this polarized world, I mean, I cannot, I just can't think of another, another time period for it. Um, not because it's going to speak to one side over the other, but it's going to show the necessity of civilized dialogue. Solzhenitsyn was a proponent of bringing voices together to find truth, right? I think it was The Economist that when he returned to Russia, put a big his big face on the cover and said, speaking truth to power. I mean, if that isn't like the left logo, I don't know what is. And that was Solzhenitsyn, speaking truth to power. And, and then on the other side of things, you know, with the conservatives, live not by lies, the fear against people uh, telling them lies or trying to control the narrative. And here we have Solzhenitsyn saying the best way to not control the narrative is to not listen to one side of the argument, right? But to be open and know that there's always more than one side. And so his books, his novels are polyphonic. That's mostly what I wrote about. Mm -hmm. There's lots of different voices in this conversation, and Solzhenitsyn can really be an antidote to this polarization by by getting us to sit down and listen to many different ways of viewing things. Yeah, he has that courage to actually, you know, he doesn't pick a side and say, well, now I'm not going to criticize anybody on this. I mean, that's partly what made him kind of unpopular in certain circles in America, because he said, you know, I'm a friend, but I'm, you know, I'm a real friend who will sometimes level with me. Yeah. And uh, and that's what's great about him is that he doesn't, you know, he he's not a team player, uh, which can make him frustrating, but also is what makes him valuable. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Well, that's a perfect spot to leave it. I think the conclusion is that pound for pound, Solzhenitsyn is worth the investment of time and uh, and effort. Absolutely. Yeah. Yep. 
Well, thank you so much for your time. Thank you for editing this work and for yourselves becoming uh, becoming experts on Solzhenitsyn <laughs> so that so that we could be, you know, dragged in as well. Well, I hope that that's what our book does. I hope people read the book and then go read Solzhenitsyn for themselves. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he's out there. Go find him. <laughs> thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Thank you to David Devil and Jessica Hooten Wilson. Find links to the book Solzhenitsyn and American Culture, The Russian Soul in the West, as well as other volumes in the Center for Ethics and Culture Solzhenitsyn series from University of Notre Dame Press in the show notes. Subscribe to Ethics and Culture Cast so that you can always get the latest episodes by visiting ethicscenter.nd.edu slash podcast we would love your feedback. Please review the show wherever you get your podcasts and email your suggestions to cecpodcast at nd.edu. Our theme music is I Don't Know by Grapes, licensed under the Creative Commons Attribution License. We'll see you next time on Ethics and Culture Cast. Until then, make good decisions. <laughs>